0: Now, I loved those American and British books I read. They stirred my imagination. They opened up new worlds for me. But the unintended consequence was that I did not know that people like me could exist in literature. So what the discovery of African writers did for me was this. It saved me from having a single story of what books are. That was a segment from Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie's famous 2009 TED Talk, The Dangers of a Single Story. Adichie's talks have had enormous impact, garnering multi-million views on social media, as educational pieces shown in classrooms, and even sampled in popular music, such as in Beyonce's single, Flawless. Adichie charges forwards at the vanguard of Nigerian literature, following in the footsteps of household names such as Chinua Achebe and Wole Soyinka. She has many things, but if I had to use one word to encapsulate her career in her writing and advocacy, It would be academic, not the stiff and rigid heap of academic bureaucracy, but the inspirational definition of academic. She reminds me of the institutions that allow knowledge to flow. She reminds me of what gathering wisdom means for us. The love for learning, learning about our histories and traditions, our identities. And she reminds me of our collective drive to push the boundaries of human thought. Welcome to Litboro. Long form essays on your favorite writers and thinkers. Today, we'll be exploring the works and writing style of Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie, the academic storyteller. Part 1 Empathy for All Stories. Adichie's works are now required reading in a substantial number of African countries, on school reading lists throughout North America, and taught in many European countries. Adichie, once an avid consumer of academic content, now becomes producer. In 2015, her essay, We Should All Be Feminists, has even been distributed to every 16-year-old high school student in Sweden. Her style of writing is extraordinarily intelligent, as it is smooth and refreshing. Her plot points in her fictional works are well thought out, with lively and endearing characters, even those that we are supposed to view as monstrous. Like the cruelly abusive papa eugene achike in her debut novel purple hibiscus despite his many flaws he also has relatable qualities qualities that we feel conflicted over admiring which adds that much more depth to the character papa one can argue is a tragic character as well he has structured his identity in a specific response to british colonialism in nigeria a devout catholic wealthy factory owner and charismatic community philanthropist. He attempts to shed himself out of Nigerian traditions in favor of what he considers to be a more modern, sophisticated culture. He speaks English in a British accent wherever he can over the Igbo language. An excerpt from Purple Hibiscus. Papa was staring pointedly at Jaja. Jaja, have you not shared a drink with us, Bo? Have you no words in your mouth? He asked entirely in Igbo. A bad sign. He hardly spoke Igbo, and although Jaja and I spoke it with Mama at home, he did not like us to speak it in public. We had to sound civilized in public, he told us. We had to speak English. Papa's sister, Hanti Ifoma, said once that Papa was too much of a colonial product. She had said this about Papa in a mild, forgiving way, as if it were not Papa's fault as one would talk about a person who was shouting gibberish from a severe case of malaria. Adichie's writing provides a clear window into different political ideologies, along with the risks and ramifications, the recent history of Nigeria, and traditional versus modern thinking, on top of exploring what identity means, in gendered, ethnic, and socioeconomic contexts. Before Adichie's academic path even began, her father was a statistics professor at the University of Nigeria, and her mother was the university's first female registrar, laying the groundwork for both her future academic interests and advocacy work. Adichie began studying medicine and pharmacy at the University of Nigeria, and then communications and political science at Drexel University in the United States. She later transferred to Eastern Connecticut State University in order to complete her bachelor's. Note that all these topics she's learned over the years studying are referenced throughout her works through doctor, professor, community leader, and politician characters. Afterwards, she went on to finish her master's in creative writing at Johns Hopkins, and then another Master of Arts in African Studies at Yale. Currently, she holds over a dozen honorary doctorate degrees from distinguished universities all over the world. To me, Adichie is a sociologist of sorts, a historian, a master writer and advocate, tackling the veil that is individual and group identity in her works of fiction, a topic as impenetrable as the famous Edem Juju Tree is for the king in Nigerian folklore. The DJ's Purple Hibiscus tells the story from Kambili Achike's point of view. The 15-year-old daughter of Papa, or Eugene Achike, who subjects Kambili, her mother Beatrice, and her brother Jaja to violent beatings and psychological abuse, controlling many aspects of their lives. Purple Hibiscus tells a tragic story of a family torn apart in post-colonial Nigeria. Half of a Yellow Sun my favorite work by D.J. follows the lives of multiple families before and during the Nigerian Civil War from 1967 to 1970, where the secessionist Republic of Biafra, in large part representing the interests of the Igbo people, would be defeated and go on to rejoin Nigeria. Half of the yellow sun refers to the flag of Biafra, which depicts a rising sun. Adichie grew up in the aftermath of the war, and her work of historical fiction no doubt uses the very real stories she's collected about it over the years. In writing her book, Adichie found inspiration from works such as Bucci Amichita's 1982 novel Destination Biafra, about a young woman's decision to join the Biafran army. Americana follows Ifemelu, a Nigerian student who goes to an American university to study, separating from her first love Obinze who travels to England instead since he could not get a visa for the US due to heightened fears in a post 9-11 America. The novel is a poignant look on race, gender, and the immigrant identity in both America as well as the UK, and the feelings that come with returning to Nigeria, a nostalgic land the protagonists left long ago. Adichie, in her 2009 TED talk, The Danger of a Single Story, explains that growing up, most of the stories she's read were by American and British authors, authors that had characters ask each other about the weather, a custom foreign to her in Nigeria, characters that drank ginger beer, a drink she's never tried growing up. And the danger of only hearing stories through this filter means that her own stories, the stories of her people, of her traditions, perhaps would not be considered worthy, and unfortunately, there's an element of truth to this fear. Not that the stories are actually unworthy, but the fact that there was, there are, and there will be critics, writers, and publishers biased against them. As an example, in 2018, a French interviewer asked Adichie, are there bookshops in Nigeria? Adding that it was a question that many French people would like to know, to which Adichie responded. You know, I think, (laughs) Think it's, I think it reflects very poorly on French people that you have to ask me that question. I really do. Because, I mean. Because I think surely, I mean, it's 2018. You know, I mean, come on. <laughs> um, My books are read in Nigeria, they are studied in in schools, actually not just Nigeria, across the continent of Africa, And, and it means a lot to me because obviously I'm very grateful to be read everywhere in the world, but there's something about being read by the people about whom you write. The question, even if it was asked ironically, was an ignorant one, reinforcing untrue negative stereotypes upon Nigeria and ultimately validating Adichie's fears that it may prove difficult for international audiences to accept more than a single type of story. Take as another example Amos Tutula's magnum opus, The Palm Wine Drinkard, published in 1952, a story about a man's desperate search for palm wine, made from fermented palm tree sap. The work was written with a fusion of modern and Yoruba folklore styles, The Palm Wine Drinkard has been heavily criticized by early reviewers for being, quote, primitive by critics at the New York Times Book Review, as well as among local Nigerian critics for helping confirm Western bias against them as superstitious and ignorant. Though many others also defended the work, such as the great Nigerian author Chinua Achebe and South Sudanese poet Taban Lo Lyon. Lyon had this to say about the criticisms. Now, in all that he has done, Amos Tutuola is not sui generis. Is he ungrammatical? Yes. But James Joyce is more ungrammatical than Tutuola. Ezekiel Mpaleli has often said and written that African writers are doing violence to English. Violence? Has Joyce not done more violence to the English language? Mark Twain's Huckleberry Finn is written in seven dialects, he tells us. It is acknowledged a classic. We accept it, forget that it has no grammar and go ahead and learn his grammar and what he has to tell us. Let Tutuola write no grammar, and the hyenas and jackals whine and growl. Stepping back for a second, I can see that there can be the inclination for publishers to promote familiar stories. Though I personally value breadth of different stories, there may be certain biases in play when it comes to publishing. Canadian publishers tend to want to promote Canadian literature, with settings they're familiar with as do the Chinese, the English, the Russians, and most other countries. Critics can be the same way. Not all publishers, and not all critics, but a good amount. The fact of the matter is, today, the Anglo-Saxon English-speaking world dominates international media exports, with American and UK-based book publishers being the largest in the world. Organizations like News Corp, the New York Times Company, and Daily Mail being the largest news organizations in the world, and Hollywood, for example, having a larger international market in filmmaking than Hindi cinema, more commonly known as Bollywood, or Nigerian cinema, often called Nollywood. Though to some critics, the Hollywood suffix nicknames are distasteful, created and applied by the West implying deliberately or accidentally that they are a crude copy of their own movie studios bringing to mind a history of cultural imperialism. Adichie from a young age is aware of all this. She's painfully cognizant of how the hyenas and jackals, the critics, whine and growl, ready to take apart her works if they deem it lacks sophistication. Their beady eyes shine at her from the darkness. Now, we require some setup before we are able to tackle Adichie's examination of cultural identity in her 2013 novel Americana. This setup will take a little time, but I promise the payoff is worth it. To begin, here's an excerpt from Americana. Dear Non-American Black, When you make the choice to come to America, you become black. Stop arguing. Stop saying I'm Jamaican or I'm Ghanaian. America doesn't care. Part 2. What is Identity? Americana Case Study In grade school, I learned that to be a journalist means reporting just the facts leaving the reporters' own biases for the op-eds instead. Journalists should take great pride in writing and reporting impartially. I learned this in a time before clickbait internet articles, before the term fake news was popularized, and before the mass polarization of Western nations' politics. I'm not saying the news I grew up with was any more truthful. In fact, it probably was the exact opposite. If anything, the truth was obfuscated even more professionally back then behind the veneer of cable television and the white-capped teeth of news anchors. After all, the 24-7 cable news that fed off ratings had already been around for a while. If there's anything my academic background and adult experiences have taught me, it's the fallacy of the impartial person. There's no such thing as impartial, not in a manager evaluating job performance or a reporter delivering news. So that's not to say we shouldn't strive to be impartial in some situations, like in a courtroom. The facts that make it to your screen to be consumed by you are hand-picked. The topics a reporter even decides to do research on is ultimately determined by ratings, or the political leanings of the editor, or someone else higher up on the pecking order. Statistics and facts are frequently selected, or interpreted in a certain way, to deliver a narrative. This is the first thing I want you to keep in mind. Facts are picked to inform a narrative. No matter how rational someone says their stance is, on anything. Philosopher and media theorist Marshall McLuhan famously coined the term the medium is the message, meaning the medium or vessel that a piece of content is delivered through fundamentally also transforms the message, its consumption, and its interpretations as well. In fact, the medium is oftentimes more important than the raw content itself. For example, A segment on climate change televised on the BBC to a family enjoying dinner would be different than if the content was delivered via comedic commentator on a podcast, even if all the raw facts presented are essentially the same between the two mediums. The message we take in is fundamentally different because of the context it's delivered in and who it's delivered to. This is the second thing I want you to keep in mind. And this is why I'm sharing my background because the medium and the speaker delivering content to you is relevant. It changes the way facts are interpreted. I was born in a subtropical city where British colonialism still has a very strong influence. Then the family moved and I grew up in another previous British colony where there was significantly less colonial influence. And now, I live in, well, a post-Brexit Britain. Here, I am a visible minority and an immigrant. English was not the first nor second language I learned though since it's become my most fluent. I exist in a demilitarized zone between cultures, though there is a certain pressure to choose one or the other, as if there's some kind of mutual exclusivity if I want to ground my identity, even though there's enough of us to form our own cultural identity. That is to say, enough people in between. An identity stuck between two cultures is enough to become its own. Not a hybrid of two, but one. Earlier, we spoke about Papa Eugene, the abusive father and husband of the Achike family in Purple Hibiscus. We can infer that he was stuck between two cultural identities at one point as well. He decided to choose one and forsake the other. Though perhaps he may not have had much of a choice, as he likely received his education through colonial schooling. Schools that taught him what they deemed as immutable, rational facts. After all, British education and society, as they say, is civilized. With advanced knowledge in mathematics, and armed to the teeth with deadly weaponry. Guns. It's all British. Never mind the use of Arabic numerals or gunpowder and cannon technology that came to Europe through the Silk Road, likely sometime in the 13th century during the Mongol invasion. Regardless, Papa favored the British way of doing things as a result of the hand-picked facts that he had been taught, and began classifying the traditional Ibo way as unsophisticated. We must take care not to go overboard here. As you can tell, I'm weaving a narrative as well. Many scholars of history acknowledge the discipline as almost inherently revisionist. In war, in imperialism, in any change of leadership, the victors are the ones that get to define societal narratives, what gets learned, what gets printed in the history books. Whoever holds the mantle of power in society, politically or culturally, gets to reinterpret events of the past to fuel how the present and future should be viewed my perspectives are revisionist, I admit that, though it's also stacked on top of contemporary American revisionism as the media I mostly consume, and that in turn is stacked on past European colonial revisionism, and so on and so forth. The facts are there, but our interpretations are muddled, and it's our interpretations of our history and legacy that contribute a large part in defining our individual and communal identities. In the Western world, there has been, for the past decade or so, a popular focus on race and gender identity issues in media and entertainment. How do we fit our identities within the fabric of society in this time of transition? As the Western nuclear family gives way to include more voices. In the West, minority voices that have fallen on deaf ears in the past are now surfacing again to better reshape their communities and contribute to national narratives. Black people in America have a shared cultural experience And it is through this experience, combined with the fact that many Black Americans have lost their roots in Africa, their historical identities beforehand erased by the Atlantic slave trade, that we can finally approach Adiche's Americana. Adiche herself and her protagonist, Ifemelu, comments not as an American-born minority, but from the distinct, intersectionalist perspective of an immigrant woman who begins to share the Black cultural experience in America later in life. An excerpt from Americana. The only reason you say that race was not an issue is because you wish it was not. We all wish it was not, but it's a lie. I came from a country where race was not an issue. I did not think of myself as black, and I only became black when I came to America. When you're a black in America, and you fall in love with a white person, race doesn't matter when you're together, because it's just you and your love. But the minute you step outside, race matters. But we don't talk about it. We don't even tell our white partners the small things that piss us off and the things we wish they understood better because we're worried they will say we're overreacting or we're being too sensitive and we don't want them to say, look how far we've come. Just 40 years ago, it would have been illegal for us to even be a couple. Blah, blah, blah. Because you know what we're thinking when they say that. We're thinking, why the fuck should it have ever been illegal anyways? But we don't say any of this stuff. We let it pile up inside our heads, and when we come to nice liberal dinners like this, we say that race doesn't matter, because that's what we're supposed to say. To keep our nice liberal friends comfortable. It's true. I speak from experience. Americana, as stated before, follows Ifemelu and her teenage love interest, Obinze. Ifemelu is a young Nigerian woman who leaves military-ruled Nigeria to study in America, Obinze travels instead to London, England. Obinze's mother is a professor at Ntsuka University, and one of Ifemelu's previous boyfriends is a lecturer at Yale. Again, hearkening back to how often Adichie writes about characters in academia. Ifemelu and Obinze finally reunite 15 years later in a newly democratic Nigeria. Much of Ifemelu's story is told in flashbacks in a New Jersey hair salon. The story follows Ifemelu's journey learning about the Black American identity and how it contrasts Obinze's experiences in England as well. Both immigrants but in different cultures, with different statuses, with Obinze being an illegal immigrant. Both reconciling what it means to be Nigerian, American, and British. Woman and man, student, writer, and businessman, and if it all should even matter. Ifemelu is Nigerian, her college friend Wambui is Kenyan. In Africa, this would be as clear as can be, but in America, they're both viewed the same, they're both black. The fact that they're both viewed as an other of similar qualities, as French philosopher Frantz Fanon posits in his seminal work, Black Skin, White Masks, make them consciously aware of not only their own being, their own bodily schema, but also the weight of their race and history as well, or more accurately, another history. As this black american history does not even apply to them they are conscious of this perception and the gaze that lingers over them has a constant soft paralyzing power as if they are continually made conscious of their position of their limbs in space americana was published in 2013 but the novel seems to ring even more truthful today as both female and black empowerment movements gain velocity in america along with right-wing ideologies on the other side both fueling the growth of the other in the most polarized America I've ever known. Americana is a story different than the ones we are used to, and these immigrant stories, the ones that tell the perspectives of the other in America, alongside Vong's On Earth Were Briefly Gorgeous as a more recent example, combats the dangers of the single story. Not understanding the diverse perspectives in society can materialize in very real dangers indeed from overt police brutality to more subtle behavior with equally deadly consequences, behavior that can only be identified en masse, like racial discrepancies when getting healthcare treatment in America. As an example, research by Hoffman et al. in Psychological and Cognitive Sciences found statistically significant results pointing out that black Americans are widely and seriously undertreated for pain relative to white Americans. Our identities belong to us, yes, but they also belong to others in a sense. Another's perceptions of us, looking at us before even exchanging words, makes a part of our own identities as well. Adichie understands and shows this artfully in her works. There's an idiom that calls the eye a window to the soul, though to me it seems more like a two-way mirror. In observing, we also reflect back. When internalizing an identity, we also projected Part 3: Works and Reception. Purple Hibiscus, Adichie's debut novel, went on to win accolades such as the Hurston-Wright Legacy Award and the Commonwealth Writers' Prize. Purple Hibiscus explores themes of religion, violence, and familial life. It's well worth the read, but not for the faint of heart or for individuals sensitive to descriptions of domestic violence. My favorite novel by DJ is Half of a Yellow Sun, an ambitious and sprawling work covering the experiences of multiple families and a swath of characters including Odenibu, a professor of mathematics at Nsuka University with staunch political ideologies, Olana and Kainane, twins with a troubled relationship, one a beautiful professor and the other a ruthless businesswoman, and Ugu, a village boy who later becomes conscripted into the army. The story is smart, tender, and incredibly gory at different parts of the book. Published in 2006, the novel went on to win the 2007 Women's Prize for Fiction and in 2019, the work made BBC News' list of the 100 most influential novels. Half of Yellow Sun was also adapted into a film released in 2013. The film was shot in Nigeria, starring familiar names such as John Boyega, Thandie Newton, and Chiwetel Ejiofor. The film was met with mixed reviews, but Adichie herself was happy with how the adaptation came out. Her novel-length essay, We Should All Be Feminists, adapted from one of her TED Talks, is at the same time both a personal and academic work, exploring current gender issues and what change is required for a fairer society. Adichie advocates for a change in mindset, for not just men, but also women, as everyone plays an important part in determining behavioural rules for equity Outside of her novels, Adichie has found popularity not only as the face of Nigerian and feminist literature but also as a celebrity in her lectures as well advocating for more diverse stories in her talks Adichie walks in the footsteps of the great Nigerian writers that came before her writers whom she has a tremendous amount of respect for like Wole Soyinka and the late Chinua Achebe but she is also not completely new, as there are those who walk now in her footsteps, making literature a welcome, rising Nigerian export, to see these unbroken links carrying on the art of storytelling, a future legacy of writers leaving behind their past legacy and their stories as well. Not all will have the academic lightness and precision of Adichie's works, but rest assured, the future is a full sun with more wonderful stories to come special thanks to the amazing artist and producer, Tomi Owo, for listening to her song Versus, The Background Now. And thank you all for making it to the end of my analysis on Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie. If you like the content I'm making at Litboro, and would like more, please subscribe or give me a follow, and give a comment on what you thought of this episode, I'd love to interact with more of you. Keep tuned for more literature, philosophy, and media analysis content. I'll be posting again soon. I really appreciate being able to guide you on your literary journey here and I look forward to more personal moments I can share with you. Thank you.